Hey there, everybody. It's February 3rd, 2019, and it's your episode 174 of At Percussion. My name is Casey Cangelosi, and with me, as usual, are Carly Vigna. Hello. And Megan Arms. Hi. And Ben Charles. How's it going? Hey, everybody. Doing well? Ben, are you all caught up on True Detective Season 3? Uh, I have been watching Making a Murderer. So that sounds similar. Uh, I knew it. Nobody ever watches anything <laughs> I watch. I wonder why. These aren't just like shows nobody watches, Megan. These are like this is an H major HBO series, critically acclaimed, won awards. I'm not alone in this. Does anyone else here watch that show? Apparently not. Matt, you're the last possible true detective fan in the room. Damn it. All right. This just sucks. We're, we're starting over. I think you need to get some new friends, Casey. I guess so. <laughs> ben, I think you have something for... Uh... Oh, wait. I need to introduce Matt, don't I? So, you guys, today's guest is a percussionist in the Houston Symphony Orchestra and serves on the faculty of Rice University and the University of Miami. He has recently developed a line of signature snare drum sticks with Promark and is a former student of Alan Abel, and he's performed under, under many famous batons, including that of Pierre Boulez. So it's our buddy and good friend, Matthew Strauss. How's it going, Matt? Great. How y'all doing? Oh, just fine. Thanks. Ben, you had a question for Matt, I think, to start us off, right? Yeah, it's sort of an icebreaker. Matt obviously has many accolades, including performing under people like Pierre Boulez, but I wanted to ask Matt if you could share your experience of performing uh, the Led Zeppelin Symphony concert with the Houston Symphony to start off. <laughs> it's a good icebreaker, Ben. Thank you for yeah, that. I was just outside the studio talking to my students. We're talking about all, all the great concerts coming up, you know, and, and next season's uh, lineup was just announced. And, and then someone goes, well, what about Led Zeppelin? I'm like, well, yeah, we actually are doing the lead music of Led Zeppelin uh, this season. And this is like our fifth time doing it. Sixth time, maybe, in the 15 years I've been in this orchestra. And, of course, I love doing that. I grew up on Zeppelin, every single album I have. And uh, I remember the first, the first concert that they did with us. It was uh, The Ocean. It's from the album Houses of the Holy. It's a song called The Ocean. And in the middle of this tune, there's this a cappella part where they go la 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 and there was no singing. It was, it was the winds. It sounded like I was in a supermarket, like easy listening. I was like, this is bullshit. <laughs> I, I went right to the conductor whose who show it is. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. We can't do this. I'm, I'm like, you got to have the sing. He's why? You want to sing? I'm like, yeah, I do. So I, and, and of course, they're the first is two part harmony and three part harmony. And I sang with them. And that was my first time doing the Zeppelin show. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it was cool. That's awesome. And it was your idea to say, like, hey, wait, you're missing this, like, critical part of the tune in the arrangement. Critical. And they, wow, how did they miss that? <laughs> well, I think they were think. I don't know. I don't know what they were thinking, because their voices are good. They could easily have done that. But the arranger decided it would be a cool idea to put it in the winds. And I didn't think it was as cool of an idea. So we did it the original way. Oh, yeah, for sure. Way cooler. Well, hey, Matt, I was curious. You know, um, so my teacher, your colleague there at Rice University, our friend Richard Brown, who I should, God, need to invite on this podcast sometime, he re he retired just recently, and I don't even know what's happening at Rice. Are you teaching everyone? Yeah, so starting uh, this past fall, I'm the uh, professor here at Rice University at the Shepherd School of Music, and yeah. Uh, I teach all the students and all the chamber music and the classes and coachings and all that stuff. And yet you find time to run off to Miami and teach at the University of Miami with Svet as well, right? So, yeah. So I'm going tomorrow morning. Um, I'll fly out to Miami and hang out for a couple of days and then come back the last flight on Tuesday. I usually go on the average of every other week. Uh, so it works out to be 15 times a year. So you're still doing that? 
that schedule every other week. Now, this is the first year where I'm, because uh, before this year, I was half, as he was phasing out, I was taking the other half. So he was doing half time, I was doing half time. Yep. And it worked out where I was offered the job here at Rice University and uh, very, very humbled by that because I look at the faculty around me here. These are people. Oh, yeah. College. I, I knew about these people, all these really well-known people. And I would, these were my idols and role models. And so I look around, I'm like, wow, this is serious. They're, and they're wonderful people, phenomenal players. But uh, yeah, so this is the first year that I'm actually um, doing both. As, well, why not do both, right? You, you, you uh, do the full-time rice and then uh, 15 visits at Miami is which, what I've been doing um, you know, since the fall. So, so symphony. Well, you yeah, know, I, I wanted to. <laughs> no big deal. No big deal. It's so it's so much to do. And, you know, this is a question we get often for our guests and we've got it for you as well. Connor Mulford on Facebook asks, can you discuss your path of teaching at the collegiate level and how you're able to balance performance and education doing all this stuff at a very high level? Right. Well, I want to make sure I answer the question correctly with regards to the path uh, of teaching. If, if I'm uh, understanding it, my path on how I got here or I maybe so. Yeah, so let's let's discuss that. As far as teaching is concerned, when I was in school, I always uh, I would always want to be a performer. I went to Juilliard for my undergraduate studies, and then I, then I went to, and I studied with Buster Bailey my freshman year, and then I studied with Greg Zuber, the principal percussionist of the Metropolitan Opera, for my sophomore, junior, and senior years, and and then I went to did my masters in Philadelphia at Temple University with Alan Abel. And during that time, I always saw myself, well, I'm going to school to become a performer. These are performance majors, and I practiced six to ten hours a day, depending on the day, and that was what you did. And, but it was early on where I started having a, a bit of a passion for teaching. And that right from my freshman year at Juilliard, I started teaching at a, uh, a weekend school on Long Island, New York, called Children's Orchestra Society. It was in Manhasset, uh, New York, and I was teaching as a 17-year-old, that's when I was a freshman, all the way through the uh, end of Juilliard, and I would go out there every Saturday. And when I went to uh, Philadelphia, I didn't teach as much. Uh, after a while, I, I was asked by GE to teach adjunct at Rutgers when she was there, and just for a year I was there, and then I ended up going to Houston. And then I started teaching at the Texas Music Festival after doing a class. And I had been doing a lot of master classes even before then. And just like anything else in life, you, you make connections and you get a reputation and you, you uh, build up a resume. Um, and then before you know it, I, I received the call from Svet Stoyanov about coming out to Miami. And I, this is my 10th year teaching at University of Miami. And he started that year as well. And I've developed a He's, you know, he's one of my best friends. We're really close friends and we're, we're buddies and we, we share our teaching philosophies and it's been such a great journey with him. And, and because of that background of teaching in Miami, when Richard Brown was thinking about um, retiring at Rice, they wanted to bring in someone, not full-time, because he was still here for three years. So they brought me in at halftime. It made more sense to bring in someone local than try to have a search for a temporary position at the time. And then that worked out really well, and before you know it, that's how things happen. Yeah, of course. How do how do you how do you answer that question of balance? You know, you do all this stuff. You teach at Rice, you do Miami, you do Houston Symphony, and it's it's really something that I'm almost tired of talking about because people they just ask a lot, but it's always cool. Like, man, well, how does Matt answer this? You know. Well, well, yeah, and, and don't forget about the two kids. I've got a 16 Okay, well, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> five years, and that's the most important part of the whole, the whole day. And that's, the, and that's like the easiest part, right? Well, no. Right. <laughs> but but it's, it's the most rewarding part in children. But in the percussion world, uh, you just have to be so super organized, at least for me. If, if, if I just kind of fly by the seat and wake up, and I'll never get everything done. It's like going to the gym. If you don't set that time in your schedule, there's a good chance you will not end up going. 
So you kind of know the day ahead, the week ahead, the month ahead, the year ahead. What's on my calendar? What pieces do I have to learn? Do I have any chain music performances? Uh, is that a hard week with the orchestra? Oh, gosh, there's additions at Rice in Miami that month. And you have to look ahead. So sometimes you have to prepare earlier on about how you practice. And you, and you have to do maintenance. You can't just go right into the pieces. That's true when you're a student, and it's true when you're a professional as well. So you have to have a routine on snare drum, on uh, cymbals, definitely on timpani, on two mallets, on four mallets, tambourine. You can't do everything every day. It's not realistic. But like I said, based on what's coming up in your schedule, you will make the necessary time. And sometimes you get time handed to you. You're at the orchestra and, for example, they decide they're not going to rehearse the piece that was on the schedule. Well, you don't just go hang out you know, and get a beer. You go down to the practice room and get ahead a little bit. And that's, that's kind of what you do. Yeah, well, well, and I'm guessing it's probably safe to say that nobody starts all of this all at once. You know, I feel like everyone who we've ever asked the balance question to, it's not like they went from, okay, I graduated my master's degree and then all of a sudden I was teaching at two schools, playing in the symphony. You know, it's like that New Year's resolution topic I spoke about a few weeks ago. It's like, okay, like baby steps into these big projects is the way they say it's successful. That, that is a great, uh, that's a great point, Casey, because if you were to have the load that you have, or any of you have, that I have, right out of school, it would explode. Right. I mean, there's no way. You build, you build up to it. You're, you're able to enter things into your life as they come up, not all at once, because you've already set the foundation with the other things. You've already been, it's been seasoned. It's kind of in your process. And after that, oh, one more thing. Yeah, sure, bring it on. Right. So yeah, yeah, so you get to ease into it, I guess. Carly, I think you had a little follow-up, right? Yeah, well, part two of the balance question, um, not just balancing playing and teaching everywhere that you do, but is balancing your personal life, your family life with your work life. Yeah, well, balancing your, your personal life with your professional life is the age-old question in, in this country where work is a very important part of the day, not just in our industry. Uh, but our industry, we all know, to become a successful artist, it's, it's not just your passion is not enough. You have to put in the hours. You have to put in the time and the emotional effort and energy that go along with, uh, with that in order to be successful. So you have to have a partner that is extremely understanding of the sacrifice. You also have to sacrifice, in my opinion, some of your work life for your family because that uh you really get one shot at that one well i mean people get more than one shot but uh if you want to do it once you get one shot and it's uh it takes nurturing you know children they need things they do wives and husbands need things as well you know and you have to spend time with them so i don't know sometimes some people are good at getting less sleep they do that. That's not me. I can't do that. I just have to be really care. I have to carefully schedule things, including date nights with my wife. It's really important. So if I don't have a concert on any given Friday night, I'm going on a date with my wife. Baby's yeah. gonna come over, yeah. get go to dinner, and and yeah, and that's important. Like balancing balancing those two worlds. Uh, there's some people that don't get the balance, and maybe they don't do enough work in their professional life as well, and you have to do enough there too. So it's depending on who you are and what your DNA is, how you work, how fast you learn things. These all matter and what type of balance you're going to be able to get. If you're spat, you just don't sleep. If you're spat, you just don't sleep. If you're spat, you are extremely talented already. You can learn the notes really quickly, but then after that, you still practice 10 hours a day. You know, as... Because you all know Matt, but I, I don't know Matt as well. For, I know who you are, and, you know, I'm definitely familiar with your name and what you do. But as we're talking about balance and all this, and your life, you know, how you got to where you are today, I'm looking at your bio, and on the on the Rice site, it says that you graduated from Juilliard in 66. And so I was like, wait. <laughs> 75? <laughs> I've been benching... Like, 
So I was on the phone with Richard Brown yesterday, and there was some form I needed to fill out for something, and 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 he's like, "Oh, have you done that yet?" I'm like, "No." I, I said, "There's about there's about 47 things I haven't done. There's a whole list. One of which is calling up, up saying I was not born. I was I didn't graduate <laughs> or born or whatever it was. It just didn't happen. I mean, I have gray hair, see? but I." <laughs> I'm just saying, you look great for 75. That's all. That <laughs> means a lot to me. So, that, so is that a mistake on the Rice website or in the Juilliard like record? That would be. I think that's an overlook. I don't. I'm not gonna. I don't know. I'll. I'll figure it out and correct it. You're the Matt, third Yeah, like I thought. I thought your wife was younger, but wow. <laughs> I know. I know. You know, when I'm 75, I'm gonna be one of those guys that's gonna be going around with like. I'm gonna have like the pants up to my chest, and I'll be like the old, I'll be like going around like, this is bullshit. <laughs> what do you Sorry. want? We'll have you back on the podcast then, and we'll play this clip. <laughs> we'll be like, oh, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> well, we did have a question about your daily warm-up routine. Like you said, you got to have a, a schedule for snare drum. You got to have a schedule for xylophone, et cetera. And Tyler Tully asked, I'd love to hear about your daily warm-up routine as well as thought strategies on maintaining high performance level while, again, being extremely busy working musician. Uh, that's a great question. I mean, having a structured regimented routine is it's, it's so important you to maintain all the work that you've done and to improve and you will continue improving throughout your entire career you're not you're not done when you get out of school you're not done when you get your first teaching job you're not done when you get an orchestra job it's non-stop as soon as you stop going up you're going down that's my philosophy so uh with that i have a definite routine uh approach for the technique and concepts that actually help with all the musical ideas that i want to do so, for example, on snare drum, you have to have stuff in your warm-up routine that addresses single stroke control, that addresses dynamic control, all the ornaments, obviously rolls. Uh, on timpani, you have to have something that addresses all the different colors and sounds you want out of the drum, which means stroke types, which can include different stroke velocities, upstrokes, downstrokes, full strokes. Are you using your arm, your wrist, your fingers? What combination of those are you using? Different rhythms, different dynamics. You have to address rolls, you have to address muffling, cross-sticking, shifting, intonation, ear training exercise. A small aside there, one of my um, teachers from Juilliard, uh, Miss Cox, she was this phenomenal ear training teacher. She had just passed, uh, I think, within the last few days. And I still use her exercises when I'm teaching my students about ear training. And, and intonation, having a sharp ear. To this day, she studied with Nadia Boulanger. There's like the connection there. And um, with two mallet xylophone, um, you gotta have all these different exercises that address scale type passages. Make sure your hands are even. Uh, you're gonna have arpeggios, double stops, all the things that you find in the green studies as well. And then of course, a four mallet technique, a marimba. You can't ignore that that instrument is there. There's a marimba, and it's really important, and you got to be able to learn how to play it uh, so you can play a lot of repertoire, which is becoming more and more and more important, regardless of what part of the industry you want to go into. So when you're thinking about it, you're probably scratching your head now. You're like, wait, wait, snare drum, two mallets, four mallets, timpani. I haven't mentioned tambourine and crash cymbal technique yet. What am I doing? Warm-up routines for four and a half hours? For part of your career, maybe in a way you are, but after a while you have to streamline that and pick and choose the things to put in your warm-up routine that are going to address any uh, challenges that might be coming in the music on the coming days or weeks ahead. So you have strategic practice, which leads into the next part of that question, right, which is balancing a tricky uh, schedule, uh, performing schedule, and being able to maintain the high level. And like I said, you have precision warm-up. You don't do blanket cluster bomb, you know, uh, warm-ups. Precise precision is what you need. Uh, and again, based on what's needed coming up that week, that month, or in the next few months. I'm, I'm, I'm getting ready to play a piece uh, 
by Henri Dutilleux called Citation. It's this nice chamber piece for double bass, oboe, harpsichord, and percussion. So it's not something I'm going to whip up in a week. So it's something I'm going to study and I'm going to look at the score to make sure I know where I'm supposed to play. And, you know, that's in addition to, of course, keeping up my uh, chops and looking at all the other music I need for the orchestra and looking at all the stuff I have to prepare my students for. Yeah, wow. Well, let's uh, let's give Matt a little break here. Ben, you know, this podcast, we might be the nerdiest. We've kind of always like teetered right on the edge of the nerdiest percussion, maybe music podcast out there. But I think you might be tipping it over the edge right now. <laughs> Is that right? <laughs> it might understand there's a history of timpani. Is that a thing? So, well, I'll start with, I guess, what Casey's mostly referring to. Uh, I think probably all five of us are familiar, but if anyone's not familiar, it's uh, listening, that one of the most significant, I think, excellent resources for percussionists is there's a book by James Blades called Percussion Instruments and Their History. James Blades is a very significant percussion teacher of the 20th century. Uh, he was Evelyn Glennie's teacher, as well as uh, Eskel McSowen's teacher. Um, so anyway, but this book has been around forever, and it's kind of pricey. Casey, does it does it have the price printer on the book? It's probably like forty oh, bucks, something like that. This one doesn't, but I know I've seen on Amazon. There's plenty. So yeah, it, and it, sometimes it goes out of print, and it's hard to get your hands on. But anyway, recently, like maybe three months ago or so, Rebecca Kite actually released a digital version of this book. That if you are interested in purchasing it, it costs fifteen dollars, which is a total steal. Yeah. Uh, and if you just if you just Google awesome. GP percussion, uh, James Blades, you know, whatever, that's how you that's how you can find it. Rebecca, Com Rebecca Kite's company is GP percussion. Um, and so anyway, I got this book like a couple of days ago and was just totally nerding out. I, I think I lost my print copy a long time ago. I think I loaned it to a student or something. But anyway, um, Matt is an excellent timpanist and we always enjoyed his timpani masterclasses at Miami. So I figured I would talk a little bit about the history of timpani and pretty much all of this is straight from the James Blades book. So if you're interested in reading more, there's plenty in there and there's actually probably too much to cover in, in one podcast. So I'm going to start with, uh, sort of 1623, which is a significant year I'll talk about in a second. And then we're going to go all the way up to Bach. So we're actually not going to get into most of the orchestral Anyway, according to the James Blades book, uh, there was sort of in Germany a tradition of timpanists that was sort of passed down by rote, and there were some royal decrees in the early 16th century, and then finally in the early 17th century in 1623, there was established the Imperial Guild of Trumpeters and Kettle Drummers in Germany. And this was very significant. All the people that were in this guild which there was like an apprenticeship you had to go through to get in. Uh, they were ranked as officers in the military. And this is a uh, very kind of fancy sounding. They were privileged to wear ostrich feathers of nobility in their hats, which were quote unquote, in many cases, three cornered, um, which I think most orchestral timpanists are not wearing those these days, but sounds pretty cool. <laughs> um, so the, uh, the kettle drummers would ride on horseback. And uh, their their horses in particularly in particular were ornately decorated, and they got to ride near the commander of their troops. So very highly respected people, and their secrets were closely guarded. And in fact, it was illegal for people outside of the guild to play timpani or even own timpani. And these rules were still in time in uh, in place by box time. And there's some odd relics that persist from this. Um, for example, trumpets and timpani cannot be included in an orchestra performing in London's Guildhall unless royalty is present, which is kind of interesting. We still have that today. Um, and then just like of note, Mr. Blades points out in the book that uh, it seems most people, even uh, English speaking people, prefer the term timpani or timpanists instead of kettle drums or kettle drummers. And part of the reason for this is there was a composer by the name of John Cooper in the 1600s that went to Italy and he sort of had, I guess, a transformative experience and he came back and his new name was Giovanni Caparario. Uh, so uh, for some reason that was fashionable and people wanted the Italian sounding names. So we went with timpani. Um, so the earliest timpani had laced heads, which if you're not familiar, if you think about a tabla that has like a skin head with sort of lace wound throughout it that pulls tension right. on the head. Um, that's what the earliest timpani had. And then in the 1500s, uh, screw tension timpani came into play. 
And in fact, uh, Leonardo da Vinci envisioned a screw-tuned timpani in his Codex Atlantica, uh, which was written between 1487 and 1490. Uh, and interestingly, in another work, he actually envisioned a drum with cogs that was adjust, uh, attached to a lever to adjust intonation. So he basically predicted the modern pedal timpani by almost 500 years. So that uh, da Vinci guy was pretty smart. The early drums ranged from 17 inches to 34 inches, and they were usually a bit shallower than today's drums, about 14 inches deep, and they were made of copper or brass, although silver specimens exist as well. The sticks varied in size and shape. Usually they would have ivory or wooden heads. Later on, sometimes it seemed they were covered in leather. Sometimes they had grooves for fingers, and sometimes they also had wrist straps to attach to the player's wrists. And then also of note, there was a, a style of Russian stick called a Voshaga, which was a wooden, which I cannot imagine playing a timpani with. Um, and there were some improvements in the construction of timpani, namely the, uh, excuse me, namely the screw tension heads that improved the intonation and the overall sound of the drums. So the first sort of generation of composers to embrace these in their orchestral works were Bach, Lully, and Purcell. And the drums were mostly tuned in fourths, and the drum was actually, the larger drum was usually placed on the right, what we would call German setup now. Uh, and there are different reasons given for that. Some people said it was easier for horses to carry the, the bigger load on their right side. And uh, Hochreiner claimed that it was so the player's stronger hand would be on the, the dominant chord, so to speak. Um, so whatever the case is. Um, the first use of timpani in orchestra came from Matthew Locke in his opera Psyche from 1693. And in this work, there's not fully notated timpani. It just sort of says timpani play here and the people in the guild would know what to do. The first notated timpani part actually came from uh, a couple years later from Jean-Baptiste Lully and his opera Thessay from 1675. There are some earlier uses of timpani, but these were like in stage scenes, not in the actual orchestra pit in the opera. And they started to see extensive usage in French military circles in the late 1600s, especially by the court musicians for Louis XIV, Jacques and Andres Villador, who were brothers. And in 1685, they composed their infamous March for Two Pairs of Kettle Drums, which is in publication today and kind of a good, I think, junior recital piece. It's uh, Carly and I actually played it once for a class and it was a, a good time. <laughs> Um, and then there's also uh, the first solo passage for timpani was by Henry Purcell in his opera, The Fairy Queen from 1692. And then this leads us up to Bach, who used uh, timpani in all of his works and were often, as percussionists saying, well, old timpani had sort of a crude sound, very sort of uh, more like a drum than an actual, you know, timpani sort of hum like we think of today. But the Blades book points out that Bach was very particular about his music and that if the timpani didn't have a nice resonant musical sound that he probably wouldn't have continued to use them. So there's an interesting little debate to have there. And Bach used timpani in 49 of his pieces, 45 of which are tuned in fourths and the remaining two are, sorry, the remaining four are tuned in fifths. And he was also the first person to notate a role in his Christmas oratorio, oratorio BWV 248 from 1734. So that's our sort of uh, early timpani nerdy stuff from before timpani excerpts we know today. Wow, way to go, Ben. Jeez. I have a question. It's a lot. Do you think the Fildor brothers are, are receiving, um, the family's receiving residuals to today? <laughs> <laughs> I would guess not, but they'd probably be making quite a bit of money if they were. <laughs> they should be. <laughs> yeah. That was fantastic, Ben. Thank you. Yeah, and it's, it's also interesting. We talked a bit on like the Jonathan Haas episode, and actually... This is probably somewhere in the Blades episode, but or sorry, on the Bill Murch episode when we talked about Jonathan Haas. There's like four or five like really interesting concerti from early on for like eight timpani. I know, I know, Matt, one of your students has been playing one of those. Yeah, he's playing it in Miami with he with the orchestra by Fisher. By Fish, his last name is Fisher, and it's for eight timpani. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's just the notes of a major scale. And he he um, Lucas Sanchez, he's one of my students. He is composed quite the uh, cadenza and it's really interesting it's beautiful it's a concerto and, right fisher concerto I'm, I'm sorry yeah it's a concerto yeah. right concerto yeah for orchestra symphony and orchestra and uh john haas story is uh i played that a piece by the uh Philidor brothers on the radio with uh, jonathan haas some small station in 
southern New Jersey. At the time, I was studying with him, and he uh, was coming out with an album, a jazz timpani album. And he was going around to radio stations promoting timpani, you know, improvising on the timpani, like playing bass, bass lines, jazz bass lines. But then he also brought this Philidor Brothers, and we, we played this duet together. So it's funny, when you were talking about that infamous piece, I remember, I remember this time with Jonathan Haas. Very, very cool. Yeah. If um, just quick shout out to our friend Bill Schaltis, who we've had on the show before, who I think a lot, a lot of us know, but he came here and gave a great history of timpani masterclass. Cool. Um, yeah, if you ever have Bill out and he, and he tries to say, oh, I want to do a clinic on this, say no. Casey says you have to do your timpani oh. class. And when he <laughs> says no, I've been, I've been doing that for years. I don't want to do it anymore. Say no, 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 no. Just you have to do it. Like I'm not even interested in this, and I loved it. That's awesome. Yeah, I thought it was really, really, really good. Megan, I think you have a question for Matt, right? Sure. Well, I just, you know, the topic of auditions in the orchestra world is is huge, right? And so I, I would be curious to sort of hear your experiences auditioning, but I thought I might kick it off with a, quest, a Facebook question uh, from Daniel Crisp. He says, hey, Matt, do you have any excerpts that you absolutely dreaded practicing for auditions? Why did you dislike them, and what about uh, about which one? Which, wait, what about ones you really enjoyed shedding? Which ones did you enjoy shedding? <laughs> <laughs> if I could, if I could interrupt, sorry to, if I could interrupt before Matt, I just want to say at Miami, uh, Matt comes out and he gives lessons, but he also does these like two-hour master classes where it's like, okay, everyone prepare a xylophone excerpt and. Like, I think as students, we always think of excerpts as like this thing, like I have to go practice my, you know, Porgy and Bess this week. This week is Porgy and Bess. And it's something like, it's a very accuracy driven thing. And Matt would show up and like shred all these excerpts that I don't even think he had practiced probably in years. And like, it was just the most like musical, not, not an exercise thing. <laughs> so I just wanted to give like a little shout out to Matt for that. Like the way he plays music, at, or sorry, excerpts as music. Yeah. I like playing excerpts as well. I think they're... Uh... Thank you, Matt. Excerpts <laughs> <laughs> oh, for sure. We've um, talked about this, Ben. <laughs> do I, I, I swear to God I saved the P anyway. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's kind of a pain. Excerpts. 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 I actually, Ben, I, I thought of you because I heard someone else say excerpts, and I, I don't remember who, but I thought like, oh, wow, I, I need to... Ben needs to meet this person. <laughs> they share the same. They share My the mom same was a speech function. pathologist. She, she would be so, so ashamed. <laughs> but I, I, yeah, I guess back to the question. It's something about uh, dreaded excerpts, right? Right, right. And which ones do you enjoy shredding? First of all, Ben, thank you for the compliment about, about those classes. Um, I'll be giving one tomorrow on timpani. And uh, yeah, so these... Some excerpts are more fun than others. And honestly, though, before I speak about which ones I don't like preparing, just in general, in general, my job as a musician is to play every single piece as if it's the best thing since sliced bread. Yeah. And, and I, I remember when I was young, when I was in youth orchestras or I'd go to like Tanglewood, the Boston University Tanglewood Institute, all these places, I'd hear someone say, yeah, that piece sucks. And I'd be like, what? I, I never thought, I thought everything was great. <laughs> Maybe it was like youthful exuberance, but I was so pumped to play. I mean, sure, some things were amazing, but I, I thought the music itself was such a, it was such a pri privilege to play. So I, I do come from that angle of positivity when I see a list. Like, I'm like, look, I'm scared. immediately finding something or many things to get excited about for every single one of them. So I try not to come from an angle of dread. It's, it's excitement and some things are more challenging than others, uh, but I really feel like it, ser it served me better and would serve uh, everyone else better to really be excited about what's going to happen, which is the next two and a half to three months of your life sending mm -hmm. around this list. So sure. dig on it. You know, basically, you know, I remember there was this for this Boston audition, this by Christopher Rouse called Phaethon. I apologize if I'm um, mispronouncing the title. 
but this is xylophone excerpt. It might last 15 to 20 seconds. And I swear I must have spent 25 hours on this thing. I probably even need to spend nearly that much time. But the, 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 there was zero patterns. There was, it was very fast. And the ranges were all over the instrument. And you had to kind of nail it and play all the accents and and all that stuff. So, you know, that I'd have to roll up my sleeves for. Okay, here we go. Faith on it. I'd do a slow to fast situation. In other words, I'd start, I, I knew the target tempo. And for like weeks before, I'd start at a lugubriously slow tempo. Like it was like a dirge. It was so slow. And then I'd gradually, gradually, gradually bring it up. I mapped out the progression of how fast I was going to go every day, not just on that excerpt, but all the excerpts that are in time. And it would get to a point where nothing really was that hard because I started at a point where I could play all the notes. And I, if I'm only going two clicks a day faster, three clicks a day faster, you never, you never feel that sting of it being harder. Yeah. Um, so that's one part of my preparation. And it makes what, what the uh, person who was asking this question, it makes it not so uh, grueling or dreadful mm -hmm. to look at that list. So, yeah, that's where I come from with that. Yeah, so mapping out your preparation, having enough time. Yeah. Also, yeah. Absolutely. Cool. Um, do you have, well, I guess also just to kind of go back to the topic of additions a little bit, do you have any, um, I guess, advice for those who are going through the audition process now and maybe not finding success? You know, like it, I know for, for it, it, many people take many auditions. And so do you have any advice for people who are going through that right now? Yeah, I'm going to answer that question. Uh, yeah. With two different answers, actually. Okay. First thing is the road to winning a job, an orchestra job, oftentimes is, is a very long road. Yeah. And there's tons of ups and downs emotionally and, and just the amount of time and sacrifice that you have to be prepared to put into it. But quite honestly, anything in this world that you want to be good at at a high level will, will, will need that. If you want to be a great surgeon, it's not going to be a you know, walk in the park. So. If you want to get a job at a, at a great university, you, you know, there's a reason why you have to get there. The amount of research you've done in school uh, as a musician, the amount of performing you've done as a musician to get that job equally as demanding. So, so just be prepared in your, in your own mind to this is a long road and don't look at the end of it like, oh, I'll never get there. Enjoy that road. Savor it. I mean – Savor those nights you're eating ramen noodles because, like, you need to have a quick dinner and you don't have tons of cash to go and get, you know, a steak that night because you got to get right back into the practice room. This is part of the road. This, these are the stories you're going to be telling your students and your kids one day, no matter what you're doing as a successful artist later on in your life. Mm -hmm. So, first of all, the first answer is don't give up because you'll never win that job if you give up. Now, if, if you, from, your bones after a while, but this is just not for me. I love music, but I want to do something in music, but not an orchestra job per se. And I don't want to do this audition process anymore. All that stuff that you learned from preparing the repertoire, the solos and all of those excerpts will serve you well for whatever you want to do from your time to your concepts, uh, to knowing all these pieces. So one day you can teach it because maybe teaching will be something uh, you'd want to do. I know it was something I wanted to do and I'm doing because of that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Matt, I think you just described something we've mentioned on the show before, but this word that Angela Duckworth coined called grit, and it does have to do with like perseverance and sticking with it and like not giving up. Um, so yeah, you just described that really, really well. And yeah, that's, this is kind of my, my favorite of the, you know, of the books and ideas out there regarding like, don't give up. And it should be this machine that kind of runs itself. And if you want to do it, it's going to just like, you'll just find yourself in that room. And um, yeah, hopefully it is just kind of a, a system that runs itself. It's like I, that Fleetwood Mac song, Don't Stop Thinking About Tomorrow. That's a good song. <laughs> that's about all that is though ben that's just a good but they didn't try to cut anything out of that <laughs> megan i think you have a topic today right oh sure to follow up on the previous question a little bit oh um, yeah please if you decide that auditioning's not for you and then i was suggesting that 
well, well, maybe stick with it longer than you think. Because as, as a teacher, I've been in the position where I, I see now, I'm, I, you know, I, I didn't graduate in 1966. I'm not as old as <laughs> it says, but, but I've been around long enough to see someone's talent and where they're at and where they could be. And I've had many uh, conversations over dinner or wherever about sticking with it. And, and the emotional aspect of it and, and convincing someone that of, the, of their worth as a p- person. People, unfortunately, identify themselves, artists do this all the time, about how, where they are in their world, uh, you know, as far as how good of a musician am I, which is right. crazy to itself. But I've seen so many people, they would have given up, and I just, you, they just need the uh, reassurance and to give themselves that last bit of conviction. And then, and then bam, they, they do end up actually doing it. Or Megan, like we were just talking about, they might not win an orchestra job, but they end up doing amazing stuff like you guys all have done uh, in your careers. And it's, uh, it's really important to keep that attitude uh, from, that, from that book you were just showing us, Ben. Mm-hmm. Casey. Yeah, anyway. Megan, what do you have for us today? So I just have another, I have a quick topic, um, and this is in a a sequence that I had mentioned actually on Carly's episode, on episode 169. Um, There are so many composer collectives out there, and even though this is not a, the composer collective is not a new concept, you know, it dates back to the classical music period, um, that it's interesting that these still exist and for the purposes that they exist. And so on Carly's episode, I talked about the uh, Kinds of Kings Composer Collective. And I hope some of you were able to check out their website and uh, find some of their works for percussion. Um, I have a list of their works for percussion. Actually, if anyone is interested, I could email you that. Um, I'm not just going to list them all here. But today, I wanted to tell you about another one, the Sleeping Giant Composer Collective. And as where the uh, the kinds of kings were five women, um, these are six men. They're young American composers, Timo Andreas, Chris Cerrone, Christopher Cerrone, Jacob Cooper, Ted Hearn, Robert Hanstein, and Andrew Norman. And I'm sure some of you recognize some of these names because many of them have quite a few works for percussion now. Um, The New York Times called them talented guys who are rapidly gaining notice for their daring innovations, stylistic range, and acute attention to instrumental nuance. Um, And they have quite a diverse body of uh, prizes that they've collected as composers and diversity over sort of a rigid aesthetic in their training. Um, so some recent things that they've done is an evening length collaboration as, as a group, an evening length collaboration with 8th Blackbird. Um, and that is deemed, quote, a diverse, eclectic and colorful suite with narrative thrust and a structural arc, uh, end quote. And they also did a two-year Music Alive residency with the Albany Symphony and also a multi-movement work for cellist Ashley Bathgate. Uh, They do, they present um, concerts of their music as a collective uh, frequently. So there will be a piece of each of them as well as um, doing um, things where they're composing together. Um, so let's see a couple other of those sold out concerts at Le Poisson Rouge in New York, um, Brooklyn's Littlefield and John Zorn's venue, The Stone. They also co-wrote a piece in 2011 called History, uh, Histories, Histoires, um, inspired by, um, Instravinsky for Ensemble ACJW uh, through Carnegie Hall. And they also wrote a piece for Deviant Septet. So um, that's the Sleeping Giant Collect- Composer Collective. I think probably, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the ones that most percussionists will recognize the most are Chris Cerrone and Robert Hanstein. They've been writing for percussion a lot, but also Timo Andreas recently wrote a piece for Third Coast Percussion as well. So do any of you know, are familiar with any of their works or? Um, yeah, so I put that- in our chat actually that, that Robert Hanstein piece, uh, Hemming, is like really pretty. And then Christopher Cerrone's Memory Palace, I saw yeah. Ian Rosenbaum perform. Yeah, and like, cool. that's one of those pieces that's just 
mind blowing. <laughs> so good. That's cool. Well, yeah. Those who aren't familiar with Memory Palace, it's an it's a crazy multi movement work with electronics, um, interactive electronics at a max patch, and it uses non traditional instruments like. Um, long pieces of wood, like a keyboard that you have to build, wood slats, um, bottles, a guitar, lots of stuff. Really Megan, have you piece. have you played that work? I have it by Coach the student on it last year. Okay, gotcha. It, it, like, correct me if I'm wrong, but it it actually doesn't seem, other than just the the volume, like the the amount of music there, it doesn't seem too difficult. Yeah. Um... I don't know. <laughs> it's kind of hard to say because it's so, it's so not what we normally do. But yeah, I mean, it's a work that I mean, I definitely like to look at. But yeah, it's it's very long, but it doesn't. It's not like I don't think it'd be along the lines of like learning like uh, Zeklus or something like that. Sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It takes a lot of planning and a lot of logistics. Cool. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Well, I know Timo Andreas has a piece in that new snare drum collection that Sean Tilburg put together ah, okay. and mm. it's not one i've heard yet because man sean can't keep enough books in print and i haven't heard it yet so i can't I... so okay. but yeah sean said that's so he's he really 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 likes that piece in that collection so um that's about all i know i haven't heard it yeah well cool thanks so much megan yeah. uh let, let's see we're coming pretty close to the end we've got about 10 or 15 minutes left but we do have a few more facebook questions and one of them is about matt's new sticks matt do you want to tell us we have will marinelli asking can you explain the process of designing your brand with uh or your uh signature sticks with promark what's going on will i know will how you doing yeah we know will we like will he asks lots of good questions thank you will um, yeah, so, so I was in, um, I was here in Houston and the, uh, I received a, a call or fr- from somebody who's working, who works at Promark, the Dario and Kyle Thomas. And he asks if, uh, I can meet with him and a friend of his who is consulting and does consult for the company um jerry noble and they were going to be down in houston and i had no idea what for and we went to a, a nice turkish restaurant uh istanbul grill you probably know the place casey oh they're in houston in the rice village yeah oh yeah 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 you're on the record saying houston has some of the best food of any city is this right it's i think so yeah absolutely i it's was a, i always talk about good food in houston yeah. it's fantastic and just getting better so they, they asked about creating a, a signature line and beginning with snare drum sticks and to help them design it. And I, I wanted to make sure it just wasn't putting a name on a stick because there's that ask. Sometimes that happens as well, where you know, your name's on the stick. And yeah, I like it. I'm going to put my name on it. It was a very collaborative uh, process between me and, and Promark, their engineers and, and everyone else there. So. I, we came up uh, initially with two sticks, the MS1s, the MS2s. The MS1s were um, a general stick. And let me go get them. They've got a, a, long, a long bead that uh, increases the surface stick on the head, which for me helped out with my rolls. That was a cool thing. And I've always enjoyed using the uh, Reamer, Able, Allen Able models. And I wanted to keep somewhat of the similar feel. So there's a kind of a long taper, so you feel a lot of rebound, coupled with the uh, long heads. And that we finally came up with the right weight distribution, and we ended up going to use persimmon. And we ended up with the MS1. They were showing me uh, where they make the nylon tips for their drum set sticks. And I was thinking, well, this, this is crazy. We should have nylon for um, orchestra. We're always trying to find the next thing that's going to get our snare drum, our so- soft snare drum playing to be cleaner, clearer. We got the drums just keep on shrinking. You got uh, the pearl pancake drum, which I have behind me. And you've got the decibel drum and all these other small little drums. You've got smaller beaded sticks. 
You get, you're putting handkerchiefs on the drums. People right. are putting marching scoops on the bottom of the drums to focus the sound. So I'm like, why not actually the, the material of the tip? So we came up with this, more of this disc type shape with the nylon. And uh, it works really well because it's got a great orchestral feel to it. This, unlike my generals, has a very short taper. So there's more of a forward feel. Because when I play snare drum, I like to allow the stick to drop onto the head. I don't want to do any work. I want to use the weight of the stick, especially for soft playing. I support the stick with larger muscle groups, which is why my, hand, my arms aren't against the side of my body. Like this. It's more out like this. So I'm kind of supporting. And then I just simply drop the stick onto the head. Now, this, this synthetic material, material brings out more high parcels of the sound. So it's a brighter sound and then, of course, uh, becomes clearer. And uh, that's a very brief synopsis of how we came up with both those models. We're working on the MS3s right now, and then we'll see where we go from there. Is that the same nylon they use, just like nylon tip drumsticks? Same exact material. Cool. Uh, yeah, sure. There's an, there's a, it's a, there's a, it's injected inside, so there's like a little bit of weight to it actually, uh -huh. and uh, it feels good, you know, just to play softly. You don't have to work very hard at all. Very cool. Sorry, uh -huh. Carly, you had something. <laughs> cool. Yeah, Matt, I have a question for you. I'm wondering, do you think the skills needed to win an orchestral audition differ from those that you need when you're on the job? And if so, how do you think students can be as prepared as possible for both situations? That's a great question. And yeah, the skills, um, there's a lot of the same skills, of course. But there are, the reality is, yeah, there are different skills and needed in winning an audition. Uh, you know, for example, we are just talking about soft snare drum playing. Most of the time in the orchestra, you wouldn't play as softly for a soft part as you would in an orchestra edition. So you have to get used to being in that world, that micro world of super duper soft. Uh, that little pancake drum that we're talking about, we wouldn't, um, we wouldn't use that in the orchestra. I can't think of any time I would. Um, I'm sure there is a use for it, but that's like, I'm thinking auditions for that drum. And also just the way you phrase things, the way you shape things, dynamics, mallet choices. A lot of the times they change because it's a different perception because the orchestra's not there. You have to make it sound like the orchestra's behind you, but ironically, you have to sometimes do different things to your playing to make that even happen. So yeah, oftentimes there's different skills, but the most important skill, of course, is the skill of, of the mental game. Because playing in an orchestra, while there are solo parts, especially as a percussionist, when you're playing an audition, it's basically the same thing as playing a solo recital. And that is a whole different ball game. And you have to have, uh, besides the level of preparedness, you have to have a certain, you have to have a certain mentality that keeps you positive, and that keeps your head in the game, and that keeps you focused, and being able to do all that, and then letting go to be a real performer, a real musician. So you don't start doing things, locking up your wrists and the tension, or using larger muscle groups, which changes your sound. All those things you practiced. So. Being in the game and practicing that is really important. And how you practice, you can visualize yourself playing auditions. Kind of work yourself up to get used to playing under that pressure. I have my students log a minimum of 15 mocks per audition. And it's still no substitute for live audition. And I, I try to have people follow up on auditions. You do one, well, do a couple more. Even if it's for like a sublist audition somewhere, do it. Get in front of people. The sensation right. of getting on a plane, getting off the plane, everything, you know, you'd rather be home, but no, you're there, and I'm going to get in the game there, wherever I am. Actors do the same thing. Surgeons do the same thing right before they start. I get very nervous. To this day, I get nervous. It's no secret. Everyone, you know, you, most people get nervous. It's being, it means you care. That's a good thing. So right before I go on, whether it's, you know, a solo or whether I'm about to play an audition, I'll look in the mirror. I'll find the mirror somehow. It's easy now with the phone. You can look back at yourself. And I'll just pump myself up. I'll get the biggest smile on my face. Nice deep breath. Breathe out slowly and go. Here I am. Now it's your show. You, you're in control. Yeah, wow, cool. Man, what, what do you say to that student that wants to do all those things 
and also has this frustration of, oh, and at the same time, I have to prepare a solo recital for my degree. I have to pass music history. I have to pass music theory. I have to do all these extra things that I think we all agree are good, but they're often saying, you know, hey, it's just it's my goal to win this job. And frankly, all this other school stuff is getting in the way. I'd say slow down. You're in yep. school for a reason. You're in school and these things are good and you're going to use them. You're going to use the ear training. You want to play the best solo recital. You don't want to write it off because you'd rather take that audition. That solo recital is going to make you a better player for all the additions you take. So treat it, you know, it's, it's paramount for your education recitals. That's great to hear because I say that and they say, well, Casey, what the hell do you know? You haven't won an orchestra job. So now I have it. <laughs> the, the thing is kind of strategically schedule a recital you really don't know when the orchestra auditions are going to happen when you're scheduling a recital many many months in advance but there's periods of the year where there's generally less auditions than more and you try to you know be savvy about that and maybe you sit an audition or two out it's not the end of the world right you don't have to do every audition yeah well like you said earlier the long it's a very long road you know yeah yeah well, we have just a couple more Facebook questions. One, I think is kind of fun, and it's just from Edward Cho, and he asks, what's the most difficult piece you've had to play in orchestra? I think that's fun. Oh, Ed from, uh, from, from Korea. Yeah. I guess so. Edward Choi. Ed uh, from Facebook. Well, yeah, everyone's from Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> so the most difficult piece I had to play. Gosh, that's a great – thanks for that question, Ed. Um, well – I'd, I'd say basically it depends on what defines difficult because there could be a part that you learn that doesn't have the craziest licks, but for some reason you're supposed to play at the violins and because the orchestration of the winds, you can't hear them. And then you're going on your intuition that defines, that's like a certain level of difficulty that you don't in with chamber music. You don't really have to have that because you're close enough usually to everyone where you hear stuff. That's one of the difficult things about playing in the orchestra and in the back of the orchestra is the placement and playing ahead of the beat when needed and also literally hearing what you're supposed to be playing with. And then once you hear them, you still got to play ahead of what you're hearing. Otherwise, right. you're... that's a very general answer, of course. I'd say the most difficult note-wise in the orchestra, and it, uh, this is just what's coming to me right now, I played uh, Messian's Chronochromy, and I learned the, the keyboard glockenspiel part on the glockenspiel. And one of the parts, it, it's uh, a bird, garden warbler. And anyone who went to tango would me asked Joe Pereira, Eric Milstein, and um, we played this thing, and it was just insane. There was zero patterns, and it went on and on of these crazy sex tuplets all over the instrument. You had to just memorize it, and it took forever. I remember that, and uh, I remember when I was done, I was like, oh, thank goodness, because that was, I remember, that, that one stands out as far as notes are concerned. Cool. No, that's a, that's a fun answer. That's good. And one more Michael Petrie asks, what was a major breakthrough that you had in terms of preparing any excerpts from scratch to the audition day? I'm going to guess that the questions, regardless, a breakthrough in, in my preparation as a sitting so, uh, yeah. musician, what really helped me. And devising a plan, a routine. Without a plan, it's nothing. You're just flying blind. So when I started devising a plan, and Ben and Carly probably from my classes some of my classes in miami is um when you have a plan of attack so to speak you're going to feel it's going to build confidence and confidence is key in winning an audition so for example one part of that plan is taking a three to four week period in that two to three month period and taking a tempo that's one half to two thirds the target tempo and gradually bringing it up over a three-week period then taking another week and reducing the click say maybe until there's just a click on the metronome having happening every four downbeats. Can you right. imagine how confident you're going to be if you hear that click lining up with that fourth downbeat every time? You're like, oh, yeah, I don't need a metronome. I've got it. And then you got to start recording yourself. And recording myself is another, you know, Debbie Downer because you hear all the stuff that you thought you're doing well and you're not. But then you, we, you iron out those wrinkles. So, like, it's a long process. But having a plan, having a routine, and then sticking with the plan every day, build yeah. confidence. And me, I, I have zero focus in life. I was all over the place when I was younger. And the plan is what made it happen for me and sticking with it. 
Really cool. Well, hey, thanks so much for joining us, Matt. It's uh, always great to see you, and I hope we cross paths again at the Gobs like three years ago at Ted Atkatz's thing or something. Oh, my gosh. Well, there's always PASIC, right? At least that. I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, see the people you want to see at PASIC, I guess. It's always it's it's hard to find everyone. Yeah. Well, anyway, hey, Carly, Megan, Ben, thanks so much. And we'll catch you all on uh, 175. Awesome. Thanks. All right. All right. Bye. All right. Bye. Bye, everyone. Bye. Thanks a bunch.